That is an old and relevant song for us this morning as we look again at John chapter 6. Teach us, Father, to trust you. We do trust you, O Lord, but teach us to trust you more. Teach us to love you more deeply and to trust you more fully so that we can represent you well on this earth and you through us can accomplish much for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We are once again in John chapter 6 and this beloved story of Jesus walking on the water. I don't know about you, but I love reading stories of Christian heroes of the past. If you've been around here very long at all, you know that I love reading biographies. I have stacks of biographies in my office and in my home. We love to read biographies. And whenever I read about men like Adoniram Judson or um, Hudson Taylor or David Brainerd, I always come away with a greater desire to be more faithful to the Lord. I always think that if I could cultivate the kind of faith that they had, that God could perhaps do more through me than he's done so far and in the past. Um, but I wonder if, as we think about these men's lives and as we think about, for example, the apostles, do we wonder how they got to be such men of faith and some others, some faithful women like they were that God used so powerfully in church history to accomplish so much? How did God bring them to a place where they were such men and women of faith and power? Well, I, could, I can tell you that it would probably was not through reading biography. As much as I love that, as much as I learn from it, the power to change is not necessarily in reading, although that can be helpful. Rather, in the case of so many of these men and women, it was largely through personal suffering. God led them through some very dark places and some difficult days. And sometimes the only thing that can break through our faithless sense of self-sufficiency is the fury of a perfectly tailored storm designed by God to reduce us to utter dependency upon Christ. That's where we discover that the power, the all-surpassing power, is from God and not from men. And this is exactly what the disciples needed to learn by the time we reach the account of Jesus walking on the water. Little did they realize that when they finished eating the scraps, the leftovers, after Jesus fed the 5,000, more than perhaps 20,000 people, little did they realize that as they stood there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, that this was really the calm before the storm. We read about it in Mark, as Brent read for us earlier, Matthew also has an account of this story, and so does John. John is perhaps the most abbreviated, and let's read it together. Stand with me, if you will. In John chapter 6, beginning with verse 16, just a few verses long, and we will fill in the gaps by looking back at Matthew, and I'll even point you a couple of times, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, to Mark, and then a couple of times we'll point back to Matthew. But John chapter 6, verse 16 now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. 
It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. And then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, but they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and explanation of his word. Let's have a seat. And so here we are. It's evening now. Jesus had just fed the 5,000, 5,000 men. Uh, Matthew tells us there was also women and children, so potentially 20,000 people. But uh, rather than setting up camp for the night, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat to cross over to Capernaum, their next destination, where I presume they would have found a better, they would have had a better chance of finding lodgings and and food for the next day. It seemed strange at first that Jesus would send his men off like this. It would have seemed to, at least from a a ministry perspective, maybe it would have sounded a little uh, more intuitive for Jesus to say, hey, let's set up camp for the night. Uh, the people are, are really on fire here. They're excited. They just saw me turn five loaves and two fish into a feast for 20,000 people with enough scraps left over to fill 12 baskets. It's time now for ministry. Let's take advantage of this ministry opportunity. But Jesus was determined that his disciples needed to leave. Evidently, Jesus had some trouble getting his men into the boat. Mark's account, if you could turn back there and just keep your finger there because we'll be looking back at Mark several times this morning. Mark chapter 6, because in Mark chapter 6, we learn uh, late in this, in this passage um, that Jesus had to force his men to get into the boat Here's what we read in Mark's account. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. This is a strong language. This is a strong expression of Jesus indicating urgency and pressure. Don't worry about taking care of the crowds. Don't worry about anything else. Just get in the boat and get across the sea. The Greek word here actually means that he forced or compelled them to get into the boat. Why? Well, because the 12 were reluctant to go, number one. And number two, uh, he needed them to get away from this crowd. And number three, he had something waiting for them in the middle of the sea. Neither Matthew, Mark, or Luke tells us why Jesus pressed them. But John gives us a hint back here in John chapter 6, where we read in verse 15 from the previous story, where John says this, So Jesus, perceiving that they, that is the crowd, were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. What's happening? The crowd saw the miracle. It's coming up on Passover. If there's any time to establish a new king and shake off Rome, it's now. They've got someone who can do it. They've got a leader. They've got someone who can do miracles. He can... He can make an unlimited supply of bread. He can raise the dead. He can, he can turn water into wine. He can do whatever is necessary. Let's take him and make him king now. 
um, what we know about the disciples is if they had stayed around much longer, they would have cast their lot in with the crowd. They wanted him to be king. They kept asking him, is it now you're going to set up your kingdom? Are you going to do it now? Even after the resurrection, is it now you're going to set up the kingdom? They fully expected an earthly kingdom. Jesus didn't want them to even be tempted by it. Just get into the boat and leave. I'll catch up with you. I promise. So Jesus sent them away before any movement in that direction could begin. And unlike the previous occasions where the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was kind of there with them when the storm happened, here they were alone on the water. And there was Jesus handling the crowds all by himself. And so after the bidding, bidding the people farewell, Jesus took the opportunity to be alone. Mark tells us more. Mark says he was not only took the opportunity to be alone, but he took the opportunity to go up on the mountain and pray. And so notice the three dynamics here. Dismisses the crowd, sends his men out into the boat. Jesus goes up to the mountain to pray. That's what we have here. And so uh, the mountain is, uh, is kind of where, if, if we know our Bible very well, we would expect him to go to the mountain if he's going to pray. It seems like it was his favorite place. You got a place you love to pray? Um, I got a couple of places I love to pray. But the mountain? Uh, back when I was associate pastor and had a little more freedom uh, here, I used to, uh, whenever my wife would go see her family, which was often in the early years when we had young children, uh, I would, she would take off on Sunday after church, and I would take off Sunday after church, except she would go to Kansas, and I would go down to Dinosaur Valley State Park, and I'd set up a tent on Sunday night, because nobody is in the park on Sunday night, and even fewer, and I don't even think uh, the rangers are in the park on Monday, maybe a few. And, uh, and I would just go down there and spend a couple of days in a tent with a little card table and a chair and just pray and sing and hike trails and sit by the river and read and pray. Jesus had his place. He loved to go to the mountain to pray. For example, Luke 6, 2 tells us that before he chose his disciples, he went to the mountain, whatever mountain that was, and I'm not sure it was all the same place. He just loved to be on a mountain where he could pray. But that night, before he chose his disciples, he spent all night in prayer. Luke 9, 28 and 29, he took Peter, James, and John to go pray with him. And where did they go? To the mountain. And what happened? Well, you remember, Jesus' appearance changed. God kind of, as it were, pulled back the veil of his flesh so that they could see his glory and then the Shekinah glory arrived, and, and the Father spoke, and here comes Moses and Elijah, and, and it was the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, and there it was on the mountain. It's where he loved to meet with his Father. And we aren't told here specifically what Jesus was praying about that night, but considering what he had planned for his men that evening, I think I know who he was praying for. Twelve men in a boat thinking that their lives were over. He was praying for them. He was praying for them. Now, let that sink in a little bit. Especially those who are, those of you who are in your own storm right now. Let that sink in, because you may send out on an email or text to your friends, I need your prayers 
and your friends may pray for you. And that's good. Good. But I tell you what, there's someone else who's praying for you that maybe you haven't even thought about. Do you realize that when you are in the storm, it is none other than Jesus Christ himself who prays for you. He is praying for you. You say, are you sure? <laughs> I'm absolutely positive. I'm absolutely positive. This is the way Jesus is. And we have plenty of biblical evidence. You remember before his death? Here's what he says to Peter. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. In other words, he is going to shake up your life. And the implication here is God said, yeah, do that. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You know what's the wonderful thing about when Jesus prays? He always knows what to pray. And his prayers are always answered. You say, really, in Peter's case? I mean, he denied the Lord three times. Yes, but his faith never terminated. It never ended. Yeah, he got beat up for a little while. He allowed his flesh to take over for a little while. But in the end, do you remember what Jesus said to him? There after the resurrection, after he betrayed him, he comes to Jesus and says, uh, comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Feed my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Yes. Then feed my sheep. And you know what? Peter did. For the rest of his life, he fed Jesus' sheep. For the rest of his life, as best we can tell, he was as faithful as a follower of Christ could be. Not perfect, but his faith didn't fail. And you know, in John chapter 17, Jesus cries out to the Father in prayer for us. He says this, Father, he cries out to the Father that he would keep us in his name, grant us forgiveness, uh, uh, fullness of joy, that he would keep us safe from the evil one, that he would sanctify us in the truth, that he would grant us unity with one another and grant us to see his glory. And you know what? That prayer is going to be answered and has been answered 10,000 times. And I believe he still prays that for us. He still prays it. You know why I'm so confident that he prays for you? That's his job. It's his job. What do we think his job is in heaven? He's the great high priest. He doesn't make a sacrifice anymore. The once for all sacrifice was made by him on the cross. That's done. So now what does he do? He is the faithful high priest who stands between us and the Father, and he represents us there. Here's what Paul told Timothy. He says in uh, 1 Timothy 2.5, we learn there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. What's he doing? He's representing you. He's talking to the Father about you. He's praying. You say, are you sure that's prayer? I'm absolutely sure. How can you be so sure? Because of Hebrews 7.25, which says this, that Christ, our, ho our high priest, 
always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. I know what Jesus was doing on the mountain. He was praying for his men. And you know what Jesus is doing today? He's praying for you. He's praying for you. And if James is right, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. I mean, how, many, how much does Jesus' prayers accomplish? He's praying for you. I mean, whatever, whatever it is you're in, you're not in it alone. Whatever it is you're facing, you've got more on your side than you can ever imagine. You've got more help than you could ever dream. You are more secure than you can ever imagine. The disciples didn't know that. But when you face severe trial on the job, or in your marriage, or with your kids, remember, Christ is praying for you. And when you're tempted to give in to that, the gravitational pull of that same old temptation, remember, Christ is praying for you. And when you fall into sin and you find yourself lying in a pool of your own guilt and shame, remember this. Your high priest still stands before the throne of God like a lamb who has been slain and he is representing you. Beloved, this is the glorious truth that Jesus Christ prays for us. So I think... Jesus on the mountain, he wasn't just checking in with home via the long-distance heavenly hotline. He wasn't just fellowshipping with the Father. He was praying. He was praying for his men. He was praying that they would learn from this storm the depths of their dependency and the height of his supremacy. He was praying that the light, that that they would persevere through the midst of this storm. He was praying that they would learn to trust him no matter what the circumstances. Well, by now, the calm before the storm is beginning to give way to the chaos in the storm. Look at verse 18. The sea began to be stirred up because of the strong wind that was blowing. I have a friend who was in Galilee, and you've probably heard, if you've been a believer and have heard exposition of any of the Gospels for very long, that, uh, that the Sea of Galilee is a volatile place in terms of storms because of its, it's so low below sea level, and the, and the wind just comes uh, rushing over uh, the ridge there and, and just descends onto that water, and unexpectedly, uh, you get a storm. And I had a friend who uh, was taking a tour out there, and I asked him how it was. Was it placid? And, I mean, can you imagine Jesus having just said, peace be still? And he said, no, it was chaotic. And we got out there, and this storm hit, just like what the disciples were in. And, and we had to, uh, the captain had to drive our boat back to land. It still happens today. And so there they were. Jesus continues to pray for them, but now the boat was reaching the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Verse 19 tells us that they were between three and four miles out, about three and a half uh, miles out at sea. Now, you may be a good swimmer, but uh, four miles would be a long way to swim if you had to get back to shore. And maybe they weren't that far from the other side, their destination, but they were way out in this lake. 
verse 48 of the Gospel of Mark says this interesting word, this phrase, and seeing them strain at the oars. You see that in 48? In verse 47, he said, when it became evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on land, that's Jesus. Verse 48, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. Now, wait a minute. If he's, if he's four miles away, I mean, if it were full noon on a clear day without any storm, maybe he could see them. But now it's night, it's pitch black. And the storm has come, and they're four miles out. It reminds me of Psalm 136, where David says, Lord, where can I flee from your presence? Darkness and light are alike to you. Jesus had no trouble seeing them. Somehow he was able to see from the mountain and observe There are his men in the boat straining at the oars because the wind had come up and and was blowing against them. If they were going to get to the destination that he assigned them, they were going to have to fight the wind all the way. And so here they are in the middle of this trial. Men were alone. They were fighting this storm. If it's anything like the last storm they were in with Jesus... They're no doubt fearing for their lives. I mean, they were fishermen. They weren't swimmers. Um, The last time they faced such a storm, Jesus was in the boat with them, and they were still panicky. But you remember they woke him up, and and he got up and rebuked their, their faithlessness and looked at the sea, and he just went, hey, shh. And the sea went glassy calm. But now he's not there. Now what do you do? Now what do you do? We're we're in the same kind of storm. And Jesus isn't here. We are sunk, literally. But not so. And you think about all the miracles that he had done, which transcended the barriers of distance. It should have occurred to them that Jesus could have helped them no matter where he was. They should have been crying out to him. They still don't think of him as almighty God. They think of him as Messiah, perhaps by now. They think of him as king. They want him to set up his kingdom. But they don't get the fact that he is God. And they they haven't put the pieces together to realize that he is what the Old Testament called El Roy, the God who sees. He always sees. He knows where they are. He knows what they're struggling with. It was no accident. 1 Peter 3, 12 says this, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. And Jesus would would teach elsewhere in Matthew, not a single sparrow falls to the ground without the Father's care. And we, Jesus says, are worth more than many sparrows. He knows. He knows the trial. And you know what? He is supremely powerful over your trial, over your storm. The disciples needed to learn that the Lord is our keeper, 
The Lord neither slumbers nor sleeps. That's what God told Israel. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. I will keep your soul. Mark says the scene was taking place during the fourth watch of the night. And you're probably familiar with this, but the way the guard system worked is they'd have a watch, uh, someone watching, uh, whether it was um, at a fortress or wherever. But it was, these were called the watches of the night, and they were three hours long, each one of them. And the last one was the fourth watch, and it was between 3 and 6 a.m. So we're talking about leading up to sunrise here. Well, we know from the story that the sun just went down at the end of the previous story when they were getting into the boat. And now the sun is about to come up. And you know what that tells us. That tells us that it's likely the disciples have been straining at the oars for seven or eight hours. It's a long time. A few weeks ago, my family and I went on vacation. We went to uh, Martin Dye State Park, one of the places we visited. And we rented some canoes, three canoes, uh, to get most of our family in it. And uh, we... We paddled three miles uh, through the swamps looking for alligators. Didn't find any. It was too cold. And, um, and I noticed that the wind had picked up, and it was at our backs, which made it easy going forward. But it occurred to me, we gotta, we got to go back the other way to get home. And we did. But I tell you what, going back was a lot, lot harder than getting out there. Six miles on the water, we were sore and achy, I think, for days. At least Chris and I were. And uh, I can't imagine what it must be like to be in a boat with oars and a strong wind is against you. And you're, you've been pulling at the oars for eight hours and not reaching land. You know what that tells us? Okay, so Jesus on the mountain, he's God. He's praying for them. He's representing them before the Father. He sees them. And what's he do? Nothing. For eight hours, he prays for him. Prays for him. Kind of reminds you of, uh, kind of reminds me of the story of Lazarus, right? Jesus gets the, um, he gets the message, your friend Lazarus is, um, is dead. And Jesus says, okay. Well, let's, let's wait around for a few days before we do anything. Really? That doesn't sound loving. Oh, your people are hurting now. Go to them now. No, no, no. I know what's best. Four days. And the fourth day they arrive. And Jesus says before the tomb, he prays out loud to the Father so everyone could hear. And he said the reason he did it that way was so that the people standing there would be blown away by the Father's glory in Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. There wasn't going to be any question that he was dead. Four days. Four days. It had been so long that Martha came out and said, Lord, behold, he stinketh. It's King James, right? Where's Russ? <laughs> he stinks by now. Exactly. That's where I wanted him to be before I showed up. Why? Because I'm about, I'm about to do something spectacular for the glory of God. 
and for the joy of your family. It'll be 10 times better than anything you thought I would do if I had gotten here earlier and just saved him from a sickness. And so Jesus let them strain at the oars for hours. And here they are in fear, no doubt. Um, in both of these instances, both in, in the story of Lazarus and here in the story of the disciples, Jesus could have come to them sooner. And in both cases, he could have performed a miracle without actually being physically present, just like he had done for the centurion's servant. But in his infinite wisdom, he allowed those he loved to reach the extremity of their need before he came. The word straining here at the oars, in case we think they're just, you know, having a good time out there, uh, the Greek word here literally means tortured. These guys were experiencing not only physical pain from the work, but mental distress as well. And once again, they found themselves in a situation that was beyond them. It was beyond them. They couldn't, they couldn't fix this. They couldn't handle it. How do you handle a storm? How do you handle the wind? You don't. You just pray. And by the way, there's two stories in a row where we find them like this. The first one wasn't a deadly scenario. It was just an impossible one. Because you remember the, when the crowd found Jesus and his disciples in that lonely place where there was lots of grass, and, and Jesus sees them all coming, 5,000 men, maybe 20,000 people, and he looks to Philip and he says, Philip, how are we going to feed them? And Philip says, that's not happening not happening. I mean, if, if we had eight months' wages, we could only give them a bite. And uh, in, in one of the other Gospels, Jesus just now flat out explicitly says to his disciples, you feed them. And he had no intention of them feeding him. He was going to do it, but he was wanting them to calculate the cost of this. How possible is it for you to handle this situation? And their conclusion, it's not. And Andrew wasn't much help either. He brings the boy with the loaves and fish and says, well, we got five loaves and two fish, but what is that? It ain't nothing. It's nothing. You can't feed this crowd with that. Okay, so now they know. Now they know. This is impossible. Yes. And then Jesus says, everybody sit down. I'll take care of this. And he feeds them until they can't eat anymore. And now here they are out again, out again, this time in the sea. And what can they do for, them, do for themselves? Nothing. And it's right where Jesus wants them, at the end of themselves. You know what Jesus' first I think it was the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know what that means? Spiritually bankrupt. The people who know joy in knowing God are ones who have concluded, I have nothing to offer. If you are going to do anything, you're going to have to do it alone. Or do it through me, but I've got nothing to contribute. I've got nothing to contribute. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so once again, the disciples find themselves in a situation that was beyond them. 
And let's ask the text a question. Here they are out in the sea, in the storm, facing death. How do these men, how do they get into this situation in the first place? Well, if we were a good Pharisees, we'd say, obviously, somebody in the boat sinned. He probably needs to throw someone over. Maybe a fish will come and take care of that situation. Um, obviously, somebody sinned. I mean, health wealth? If this were health wealth? Uh, somebody doesn't have faith. Somebody must have sinned. Really? Uh, that's not how the story reads. Ironically, the disciples were in this miserable trouble. Here's why. Because they obeyed Jesus. They obeyed him. What a lesson this is for the church, beloved. Imagine what disobedience would have gotten these men that night. A full stomach? A dry place to sleep? Maybe um, an audience in someone's house where they could dazzle some family with stories of their recent ministry out representing Jesus, casting out demons, healing people, all that stuff that just happened. If they had disobeyed, that's what they would have got. And here they are, living in obedience, and they're facing this horrible storm. There's something to think about. It was obedience that put them in this uncomfortable situation. You know what that tells us? It tells us that God has a plan for suffering. Sometimes God will send you a perfect storm. In fact, everyone that you enter is the perfect storm for you. God is doing something in you, not just to you. He's changing something, or at least that's his desire. That's his intention. If you submit your life, listen, if you submit your life to Christ in obedient commitment, you will expose yourself to a variety of sorrows. There will be people who hate you. And not only that, but there will be difficulties in your life that are severe and unexpected. Your caring, uh, your commitment to biblical living your faithfulness to the Lord, that'll make you vulnerable to things which the uncommitted heart never experiences. I had a, a brother who was visiting Calvary, or, or who was a member of Calvary for quite a while until he had to move. And uh, one day something happened in ministry. He was fired up about ministry. And one day something happened. And uh, something unintentional between him and I and a third party and he got hurt, and he was kind of coming after me about it. And I listened to him, and I said, yeah, you know, I probably could have done that better. Here, let me think about that. And I may have to confess sin here, but uh, I said, but let me tell you something. We're on the front lines of ministry here, and um, you just need to know ahead of time, if you're, if you're going to get close to me and my family, you're probably going to get hurt. Because... Uh, we're not playing croquet. We're not playing checkers. And this is for keeps. People's lives are on the line. 
and you got to do things. you got to take risks, and you got to get out there. And sometimes, like when you're playing basketball and a teammate's elbow comes up and catches you on the chin, that's going to hurt. Get over it. And understand, you have the privilege of serving Jesus Christ And he's doing amazing things in this world. He's transforming people. He's saving lost souls. He's bringing people who are angry with one another and reconciling them together. That doesn't happen easily. It doesn't happen easily. And from time to time, you're just going to get hurt. And it may not be relational hurt. It may be illness. It may be loss of job. And not because necessarily you were being faithful, but just because that's God's plan for you now. Get in the boat. Where are we going? You don't need to know. Push off and see. And there you are. And you want to know why. And he's not going to tell you why. Except what his word says. Simply that My God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And what is the good? To conform you to the image of his son. He wants to make you like Christ. And guess what? That's hard. You know why that's hard? Because you're a sinner, and so am I. We're hardwired to act contrary to Jesus. If that's going to change, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. Here is yet another mighty and powerful blow against prosperity theology. Name it, claim it. Um, I don't know what they do with a text like this. Beloved, the joy in the Christian life is not found apart from the storms of suffering, but often through the winds of suffering. Never climb a mountain. This is Ken Hughes. Never climb a mountain, mountain, and you'll never bruise your knee. But neither will you stand on the peak, exulting in the victory of the alpine air. Never play baseball, and you'll never strike out. But you'll never hit a home run, either. Never obey Christ, and you may miss some, some of life's contrary winds. But you will never know the winds of the Holy Spirit in your sails, bearing you along in service and in power. The disciples would. They would know that. But it wasn't apart from suffering. It was through suffering. It was through suffering. 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Have you thought about that? That's right after he says, um, he talks about the paths of righteousness. Your good shepherd leading you down the paths of righteousness, even if it's the valley of the shadow of death, yep, sometimes it's going to be that. Sometimes it may be actual death. The child, a family member, someone you love. But here's the thing. It's the right path if you're following the shepherd. It's the right path. Jesus, having allowed his men now to reach the end of their strength, perhaps, as they fought against the storm. He now leaves the mountain to rescue them. But instead of procuring a boat, he simply enjoyed his 
divine privilege over creation and chose to walk on the water out to where they were. It's a great part of the story. Here's Jesus demonstrating his absolute supremacy over creation. And by the way, when he does these miracles, he's doing what the Old Testament said God could do. Where did the manna come in the wilderness? Where did that bread come from? We'll see later here, Jesus is going to be arguing with the Jews about this. It came from God. God makes bread. God can drop bread out of heaven. That's what Jesus was doing. How much bread do you need? How much? You got enough? Here's some more. Got enough? Here's some more. Got enough? Here's some more. Got enough? Okay, now let's pick up the scraps, see what's left over. Everybody have enough? I can make bread. I can make bread. And now, what else can you do, God? Job 9, 8 through 11, here's one phrase out of that. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Jesus says, I can do that, watch. He alone can tread on the seas. I can do that. You know what that says? I am he. I am God. Yes, Jesus could have simply stood on the shore and whispered, peace, be still. See, it's me again. Stop it. But they wouldn't, they wouldn't have seen it. They would have just scratched their heads in wonder. I wonder why the sea calmed down so quickly. Jesus wanted them to know that it was him that was doing it. Because their trust needed to be in him. Jesus wanted them to know for certain that he is absolutely supreme over all their suffering. But to communicate that, he had to do something shocking. He had to demonstrate that when necessary, he could defy the universal laws of nature as if they were nothing. The contrast here is significant. Here are 12 disciples in the boat screaming their heads off in fear, and here's Jesus in the storm outside the boat walking around like he's got nothing to be concerned about. Twelve men confined to a boat at the mercy of the wind and waves, Jesus outside the boat, perfectly free. It's a demonstration of God's supremacy and bold relief against man's dependency, man's fragility, and Christ's omnipotence. We are so fragile, he is so strong. We are so foolish, he is so wise. We are so weak, he is so omnipotent. You know why, you know why God has to send us into these storms? Why can't he just say, trust me, like he's done 10,000 times in the word of God? And we say, well, that's a good idea. Let's just trust him. We don't do that. Because we are hardwired to trust himself. And you know what happens? Two things happen. Number one, we give ourselves too much credit. We think too highly of our ability on the one hand. This, this is kind of an oxymoron, oxy, oxymoronic kind of uh, explanation here. On the one hand, we think too highly of our ability. And on the other hand, when God wants us to do something really amazing, we think, I could never do that. I don't have the ability. And in both cases, I'm measuring these two uh, perspectives on myself. 
on me. And they're both wrong. Can I do this? No, but you can. Will this overwhelm me? No, I have him. He will do it if he wants it done at all. He will do it. I just have to be willing to be used by him. Amazing contrast. Turn back to Mark. Mark chapter 6. I find the end of verse 48 kind of comical. Verse 47 says, When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the seas. Now watch this phrase. And he intended to pass them by. <laughs> it's one of my favorite phrases in, in the Gospels. He intended to pass them by. Uh, here's the image that conjures up in my mind. They're rowing. Stroke, stroke. You know, keep at it, boys. We're, we're going to survive, you know. Somebody's bailing water. Probably a couple of guys are bailing water. Water's probably coming in quicker than it's going out. They're fearful. And they look up, and here comes Jesus. We'll talk more about that in a minute. First, they think he's a ghost. And here's Jesus. He acts like he doesn't even see him. He acts like he's just out for a midnight stroll. Doesn't everybody walk on the lake at this time at night? <laughs> Excuse me, pardon me. You know, and he comes along, it's like, He's either got a song in his heart, he's either singing, this is the day, this is, or he's thinking about something and his, his thoughts are intent and it's almost as if he looked up, he must have heard something and looks up and, and as if to say, oh, what are you guys doing out here? What are we doing out here? What are you doing out here? And they were terrified. He acted as if he was going to walk right past them. He doesn't have a care in the world. It's amazing. Jesus intended to pass them by as he walked upon the water. It's amazing. I mean, you, you got to know God has a sense of humor. I mean, now if we were writing this story, this would be one of the superheroes, and he would go running out there, and he would grab the back of the boat, and he would speed off with it and bring them on land and go, Hurr! He doesn't, he acts like he's going to walk past them. Like he doesn't have a care about himself, and he's not really terribly that concerned about them. What? You're safe. You're safe. They're, they're perfectly safe. I've been praying for you all night. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're fine. They didn't know that, but he did. And isn't that what matters? Why did he do that? Why didn't he just walk right up to the boat and climb in and take charge. Well, it strikes me that he probably wanted them to notice how absolutely carefree and unconcerned he really was about where he was and upon what he was standing. He was no more afraid of what was under his feet than a child standing on a concrete sidewalk. You know, we just had this pour foundation poured out there. Yesterday, I brought the kids by, and we took some pictures of them in the baptistry. Now, don't go out there, kids. You're not allowed out there. To, you know, there's a fence out there, so don't go in the baptistry. But, um, you know, it's just a big slab out, out under the sky, and, uh, but it was just freshly poured the day before. And I was getting ready to step up on it, and one of the kids said, 
Oh, can we do that? Is that safe? I mean, I just poured that yesterday. You can see just image in their mind. Daddy's going to sink. <laughs> Daddy knew better. Watch this. Jump up on the concrete. Nothing happened. That's what Jesus was doing with the water. Verse 49 in Mark 6 tells us how the disciples responded. When they looked up and saw him out walking on the waves, they immediately concluded that it was a ghost. And to make matters worse, I mean, imagine in their culture where spirits and those kinds of things, I mean, they didn't have science. The scientific method hadn't been invented yet. Um, so they know physical and they know spiritual. Physical and spiritual. And, um, and so they look out and they know it's impossible. Nobody can walk on water. Nobody can walk on water. It's got to be a ghost. And they're scared. Now they're really scared. And they're not so scared of the storm anymore. Now that they're scared of this apparition that's on the water. And now, now they have his attention. He, he's now turned and he's, he's coming toward them. And they're terrified. Um, Mark even writes, they cried out. And the Greek word, the Greek here, it literally says, they cried up which is kind of an idiom for they were terrified. They were screaming in terror, which is why when Jesus heard them in verse 50 there in Mark 6, he says, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Can you imagine the relief when they heard his voice? John doesn't tell us, but Matthew says, as soon as Peter heard his voice, he cried back out to Jesus and said, if it's you, then call me out there with you. And Jesus says, come on. The water is firm today. <laughs> no, that's not in the Greek. I made that up. Um, you can do it. Come on out here. And Jesus enabled Peter to walk on the water. No problem. No problem. And he hadn't, the, the water's not even still yet. It's still windy, stormy, wavy. Come on, Peter. And for a, a little bit anyway, Peter walked on water. Why? Because Jesus said so. And any, anything he says, it happens. When Jesus heard their screams, he comes to them, he rescues them. Um, he lets Peter walk on the water. This account has always been a, a favorite story, especially among children in the church. But honestly, Jesus orchestrated the whole thing to make a point. He wanted his men to stop thinking of him in shallow terms. I'm not just your bread boy. I'm not just your miracle worker. You've read the Old Testament. You know there are certain things that only God can do. And I'm telling you, I'm showing you I am he. I'm him. And if they were going to be used to turn the world upside down after Jesus' death and resurrection, they would have to live with a deep and abiding sense of their own utter dependency upon his absolute supremacy over all. They had to be convinced, no matter what God wants us to do, 
will be done, even if it's impossible. And that's, that's why they are the apostles. They learned. They got it. I don't think there was more to it than that for them being apostles. Yes, they were a special group of men, especially endowed with spiritual gifts. I'm not saying that everybody can do what they did, but everybody can learn what they learned. They can learn to trust him. You know that. I mean, we look at the lives of, of faithful men throughout the centuries, like William Carey and Adoniram Judson and, and Amy Carmichael and, and uh, George Mueller and, and all of these men and women who lived through such adversity and loved God. And God used them. Think of David Livingstone and so many missionaries who went to rescue a continent with the gospel. And nobody responded. And all, they just kept every day almost dying daily. Year after year after year, very little fruit, very little fruit. And then God did something. David Brainerd, we don't have time to go over that story today. Amazing. You see, sometimes, beloved, God plans difficulties in our lives to stretch us to the very limits beyond what we are able to handle in order that we might realize how utterly dependent we are upon his grace and how supreme he is over our circumstances. How many times did the Apostle Paul have to come to the end of himself? I mean, just think about that one occasion when Paul says, God sent a messenger of Satan to buffet me so that I would not think more highly of myself than I ought to think. It's the same thing. Paul had these marvelous revelations. He had superior intellect. He had all of this, the advantages of his past, all of the gifts, all of his ability to do miracles. He was, he was the one who was taken up into the third heaven. And God knew, that is going to make you proud. You're going to think that the all-surpassing power is from you. And so Paul says, God sent these afflictions to me so that the all-surpassing power might be of God and not of men. He humbles us so he can use us. He teaches us to trust him so that we will be usable. Thomas Watson wrote back in the 1600s, the wise gods sees it good sometimes to give us the hot sauce of affliction that we might feed more hungrily upon the bread of life. We need to learn that God sees our struggles and he is the captain of the storm. And every storm is the perfect storm because he is sovereign over all. We see the captain of the storm back in John chapter 6, verse 21. And so they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus goes over to the boat with Peter in tow. He climbs in with the other 11. And when he did, Mark tells us that the wind stopped immediately. And how did the, the disciples respond to that? Mark says they were utterly astonished. The Greek says here, they lost their senses exceedingly. 
And why were they so astonished? You ready for this? It's not what you think. I believe Mark, who was not an apostle, got, got his understanding or got the information to write his gospel from Peter. I don't know that for sure, but many scholars believe it's really Peter's gospel. Mark wrote it for him. And that's interesting because in verse 52 of Mark 6, we have a note of commentary from Mark that no doubt came from Peter. Why is it that they lost their senses exceedingly? Verse 52 says this, because they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves. They didn't learn anything from the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened. They had hard hearts. I mean, here, here was Jesus. I mean, go back one story. I mean, just the night before, the evening before all this happened, the same 24-hour period, Jesus takes the five loaves, two fish, and he multiplies it for 20,000 people. And just to make sure they didn't miss, that, that is the 12, make sure they didn't miss the magnitude of the miracle, he gave them each a basket and said, now go out and pick up scraps. They all came back with their baskets full. Any questions? That's amazing. You see what I can do? Here's what Jesus is saying. I am an infinite source of provision. There will be no lack with me. I can provide no matter how much the need. I am inexhaustible in nature. Everything that is needed comes as supplied through me. And it will always be enough and more than enough. They didn't learn that. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. And that's, that's Peter's evaluation through Mark. Why were they exceedingly astonished? Because they didn't learn anything from the previous miracle, from God making provision. That should be terribly convicting to us. It should be terribly convicting. There have been times in my life, I've got a journal I've got a stack of journals under my desk in the office. And I just write in it. I have a little Thanksgiving section, little answered prayer section. When I'm aware of God doing things, I just write them down. You know, we have two chronically ill children in our family, and uh, God has used that in our lives to, to teach us. That, that's been part of our storm through life. More like a hurricane sometimes. It just keeps going and going and going and going. And, um, and there have been a lot of bills, and I told you about one of them last week. And the Lord has always kept us dependent on him in that way. It always seemed like we'd never get caught up, never get caught up. And we always feel like that. We're never going to catch up with this. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And here's what I would say. Every time we'd get a big bill, I'd open it up and I'd look at it and go, and I'd look at my wife and say, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. And then a check would come in. Oh, that's exactly what we needed. Oh, praise the Lord. Write that down in my journal. Next bill come along and I'd go, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. And then 
the Lord would provide some, some way. And I'd go, oh, praise the Lord. Write that down in my journal. Thank you, Lord. Next bill would come along. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what we're going to do. And one time, one time, this is just a couple years ago, I get this check out of the blue. Everything's happy. Everything's wonderful. We're all doing great. No, big, no car problems, no medical problems. Just we're doing great. And I get this check in the mail for about $1,000. And it was from somebody outside the church. And I thought, oh, they sent me $1,000. My wife was out of town. I thought, I'm making up a big plan here. I'm going to take her away for a weekend. She's going to be so surprised. We're just going to wine and dine. And, you know, we deserve this. And uh, so I start making my plan about a day into this. It occurred to me, Lord, why'd you send me that money? <laughs> so unlike you, just to say, here's, here's money to spend any way you want. So I remember called my wife, and I said, uh, she was out, and, and I said, um, are things going? Oh, it's going great. And I said, uh, hey, have you done the checkbook lately? Um, she said, yeah. And I said, uh, okay, so how are we doing? She said, why do you ask? And I said, all right, I'll confess. I got this check in the mail. And she asked me how much, and I told her. And she said, oh, that's good news. And I thought, wow. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay, so I'm talking red and black. How, how <laughs> where are we? And she said, that puts us to be about $8 in the black. And I said, really? What happened? Well, while she was away, something came up that I didn't know about. The Lord provided for the need before I knew we had a need. And long before it was due. And I remember telling her, I'm done asking, what are we going to do? Stuart Scott tells us great, a great story. And I'm running out of time here. Stuart Scott tells a story of, uh, gets a phone call. Older man in the church calls and says, meet me at the car dealership. I know you got car problems. Goes over to the dealership, and the guy says, look out over the sea of cars. Pick one. It's yours. Bought him a car. So he goes home, and he tells his wife, I got this new car. And it's her car. He gets the old car, right? Well, the one with almost 200,000 miles on it. It's got some engine problems. A couple days later, he goes out to the, to the driveway, and there are the two cars. He gets in the old one to drive to work, and he start, tries to start it, and it doesn't start up right away. And, and he stops, and he said, I put my head on the steering wheel, and I thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do about this car? We can never afford to fix this car. And he said, I got my head on the steering wheel, and I look up, and for whatever reason, I turn my head to the left, and there's this brand-new vehicle. And he said, I thought of Mark chapter 6, where Mark writes, because they didn't learn anything from the miracle of the loaves. Anybody here not convicted yet? This is for us, beloved. What was he trying to teach his disciples? He's trying to teach that he really is the creator in the flesh, and they can, they can trust him implicitly in every storm, no matter how short or long the storm, that he does all things for good to those who are called of God, those who are his children. We are 
we are so much like the disciples. We're so slow to learn all that God has wanted to teach us, that he is almighty. But sometimes he'll do something so drastic that we are left simply to fall on the ground and say like Job, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, and I repent in dust and ashes. And it would appear that the perfect storm kind of broke through the disciples' hearts, at least at the very end of the story. Matthew tells us an important fact that John leaves out. He writes that when Jesus and Peter climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And whether they got it that day or whether they got it after his resurrection, I don't know, but they got it. And they began living, believing that they could do nothing in themselves, but believing that God had so many things for them to do. God would use them to turn the world upside down. But they had to learn to trust him. Beloved, are you facing some harsh storm right now? Have you considered the possibility that perhaps God has designed this storm for you? It is a perfect storm for you. Have you considered the possibility that he's attempting to strengthen you, to purify you, to make your faith in him strong, to debilitate your high view of self so that he can actually use you for his glory? If you quit now, you miss it. You miss it. So stay at the oars of obedience Persevere against the wind and the waves and wait for God to show himself strong on your behalf. He will, because he always does. He always does. Hudson Taylor, one of my favorite missionaries, once wrote these words. Not frequent, not infrequently, our God brings his people to difficulties on purpose so that they may come to know him as they could not otherwise do. Then he reveals himself as a very present help in time of trouble and makes the heart glad indeed at each fresh revelation of the Father's faithfulness. We who only see so small a part of the sweet issue of trial often feel that we would not for anything have missed them. How much more shall we be blessed and magnify his name when all the hidden things are brought to light? Amen. Beloved, don't give up. If you're not in a storm, you will be because he loves you. And that's how your character is formed. If you are docile to it and not kick against it, But trust him. He has a lot of work to do in you. You know why? Because you're a sinner. And he wants to make you like a savior, the savior, so that you can represent the savior well on earth, better than you ever have. So praise God for the story. Count it all joy. Now, this doesn't mean feel it as joy, but count it all joy. 
when you face various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It'll make your faith strong. Beloved, the storms of life are God's perfect means of revealing our utter dependency upon Christ so that we would grow to trust him in all things. Let's pray. Father, we need this. I need this. This is not the first time that I've been in this text. And every time it strikes me hard. And I'm so glad. And I'm so glad of what you're doing in this church for how you, like the great goldsmith, keep pounding us with your hammer to make something gloriously fitting and beautiful in the temple of our God. Praise you, Father, for not giving up on us. Give us the grace to not give up but to see every storm as an opportunity to grow, to be more like what Christ is, and all of it for our own great joy, as it is for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name.